Well, if I could invite you to grab your Bibles, no matter where you are located uh, in the city today, and grab your Bibles, turn them open to Colossians chapter 3, find your way to this incredibly powerful chapter. Now, this is a chapter that we looked at in uh, much closer detail a little over a year ago than what we're going to do this morning. But my desire for the time that we're spending in the scriptures today is to uh, remind us of kind of the rhythms that we're living into and leaning into as we grow as disciples of Jesus and as we seek to make disciples of Jesus. Now, next week, we're going to begin a new sermon series as we look at, uh, we're going to jump into the book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to begin walking through that book together over the course of a chunk of 2021 and in a series titled, When Mess Meets Mercy, the Gospel According to 1 Samuel. So uh, be looking forward to that, be praying for our time uh, in that book, and, and look forward to joining us next week as we start a new study of a particular book in the Bible. But today, again, I just want to take a few moments to remind us of the disciple-making rhythms that we are living into and leaning into as followers of Jesus here in Seattle. But before we do that, let me voice a prayer for us one more time, and then we will dive in. Heavenly Father, as we open up our Bibles, would you open up our hearts to receive your word? Would you give us grace to respond to your word with faith? God, would you build up our faith? Would you encourage us as disciples of Jesus? And would you equip us to make disciples of Jesus? Father, we ask and we pray for all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm sure you know the difference between Batman and Spider-Man. Uh, of all the superheroes, Batman is probably my favorite, but he's the, the worst example of what it means to live the Christian life. Because you know that Batman's power and his strength and his expertise, it, it comes from outside of him. It is an external uh, strength that comes through the gadgets that he wears and that he uses and the technology that he leverages as he seeks to rescue Gotham from various villains and and so Batman, as impressive as he is, all of his power rests outside of him. And that's quite different from Spider-Man because Spider-Man's power isn't external. Spider-Man's power isn't superficial. Spider-Man's power is internal. It is substantial because you know that Spider-Man, also known as Peter Parker, he was bit by a radioactive spider. And that venom just kind of entered his body and it began to change his nature, turning him into something greater than he previously was. When it comes to understanding kind of what the Christian life is all about, understand that Batman is a terrible example because Batman's power rests outside of him. And when it comes to living the Christian life, the power to live the Christian life isn't external to us. The power to live the Christian life isn't superficial. When we talk about making disciples, we're not just looking at how to transform people on the outside of things. No, when it comes to living the Christian life, we... We want to look towards Spider-Man because Spider-Man's power was internal, substantial. Spider-Man's power was something that was taken into his life and it began to transform everything. Well, the power to live the Christian life is not external or superficial. It is internal and substantial. A Christian is someone who has taken the gospel into their lives by faith. And as they have been taking the gospel into their lives by faith, they've been given a new nature and their transformation is working itself out from the inside out. Now, 
There was a man in John chapter 3 by the name of Nicodemus who approached Jesus at nighttime with, with a question about how he could enter and participate in uh, the kingdom of God, which is uh, shorthand for saying that he would be able to enjoy the redemptive reign and rule of King Jesus. How could he live into that, live out that reality? And, and so he asks Jesus the question, how can I, how might I partake in the kingdom of God? Now, it was a surprising question because everyone in Nicodemus's life assumed that he was already a part of the kingdom. He was a good man. He was a moral man. He was a religious man. He was a devout man. From the outside looking in, you would think that Nicodemus was already a part of the kingdom of God, but something wasn't right within him. And it turns out that Nicodemus was just a religious type of Batman who was living his life from the outside in, not from the inside out. And so he walks up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how can I be a part of your kingdom? And Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 3, unless someone is born again, he or she cannot see the kingdom of God. He or she will not benefit from the redemptive reign and rule of Jesus. Essentially, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is that I'd rather you uh, approach the Christian life and approach my kingdom more like Spider-Man than, than Batman. Understand that something needs to be taken into your life and a new nature must be supplied to you by the Holy Spirit as you exercise faith in me. When we get after the Christian life, understand that that's what we're talking about. The essence of the Christian life is not about what you do and how well you do it. The essence of the Christian life isn't about you and I learning to imitate Jesus. The essence of the Christian life isn't about you and I obeying Jesus. The essence of the Christian life isn't even about you and I making disciples. The essence of the Christian life has more to do with the with taking the gospel in by faith, receiving a new nature by the Holy Spirit, and that beginning to change everything. This is what Paul is getting after in Colossians chapter 3. This is what he's reminding his readers of. If you have been raised with Christ, now seek the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And as you continue reading through that chapter, which I would encourage you to do uh, sometime today, that you would read through the first 17 verses of this chapter, you're going to find Paul zeroing in on the essence of the Christian life, reminding us of what it means to, of how the Christian life begins and how the Christian life continues, and, and even reminding us of, of where the Christian life ends. It's a, it's a wonderful passage, and I just want us to consider this morning Kind of our threefold, uh, threefold process to making disciples. A threefold process that kind of surfaces from this chapter that deals with language that you are familiar with that I want to remind you of this morning. The, the language of taking the gospel in, thinking the gospel through, and turning the gospel out. When we make disciples and we grow as disciples, that's the rhythm and the process that we are leaning into taking the gospel in, thinking the gospel through, and turning the gospel out. Think first about taking the gospel in. This is what Paul's really getting after in verses 1 through 4. And he reminds us of that, that a Christian is someone who has been raised with Christ. Now, this is a positive corollary to what Paul communicated earlier in chapter 2, verse 12. Because in chapter 2, verse 12, he talks about how we as Christians have been buried with Christ. And now he's talking about being raised with Christ. Now, 
Together, these two phrases speak to the essence of the Christian life. That the Christian life is about you and I being spiritually united with Christ by putting our faith in Jesus to such a degree that what is true of him then becomes true of us. We call this union with Christ. And Paul would pick up on the same dynamic in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, where he draws upon the same language. He says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You were saved by grace. He also raises, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The idea that we have been spiritually united with Christ and what is true of him is now true of us. That's the essence of the Christian life. This is the heart of our faith. He uses a powerful image there in Colossians chapter 3 about being hidden with Christ. I love the idea of being hidden with Christ. You know, one game I've had to ban, in my, out of, I had to ban from my house not too long ago was the game Hide and Seek. Because my daughter Adeline, my youngest of the three kids that we have, she is too good at it. Uh, when she hides, she hides really, really well. She finds the best nooks and crannies to squeeze her little frame into. And, and then she'll just sit there in utter silence. And she won't tell you where she is. She refuses to give herself up. So you might, after a few minutes, you start getting desperate and anxious, trying to find her, wondering if you've lost her and where she is. Is she okay? And, and so I start sweating. I start having some anxiety and a little bit of panic and, until finally, Finally, after desperately crying out for Adeline to come out, she'll come out laughing and smiling and giggling. She, she's so good at hide-and-seek that I had to ban it from my house. My heart can't take the stress and the strain that came with playing that game. But the idea that we are hidden with Christ in God, the beauty of this means that whenever death comes looking for us, it's not going to be able to find us. That as death looks for us, it cannot find us because we are hidden with Christ in God. And that's a wonderful place to be spiritually. So we put our faith in Christ, being united with him. And when all is said and done, we know that when Christ, who is our life, appears, then he also, we also will appear with him in glory. That what is true of us, spiritually speaking, right now will become evident to everyone around us. This is why you have the language of, of being seated, the, the present tense language of you and I being seated, at the, of Christ being seated at the right hand of God, and our life being hidden with Christ in God. And earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, that we have been raised with Christ. This, this language of, of what is true of us spiritually will become manifested physically when all is said and done. But in this moment, we know that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's seated with him, placed above the fray of the fallen world. And, and you and I, spiritually speaking, reside with him in this very moment. Now, when you think about what's at the right hand of the throne of God, Psalm 16, verse 11, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures, saying at the right hand of the throne of God, there is intimacy and there is honor. That is where Christ is now. And spiritually speaking, that is where you and I are too. 
we enjoy honor before God, having been brought into his family, adopted as his children, loved and cherished and prized by the creator of the universe. We, at the right hand of the throne of God, enjoy intimacy with him. We refer to God, not just as our creator, but as our father. So we commune with him. We fellowship with him. We, we engage in spiritual practices and spiritual realities because of our having been united with Christ. Now, when it comes to taking the gospel in, these are the realities that we want to remind ourselves of over and over and over again. These gospel realities that we want to speak into one another's lives as we interact with each other in formal settings, in casual settings, as we sing songs together, study the scriptures together, as we counsel one another. We are counseling one another to encourage the exercise of faith that is constantly taking the gospel in, taking it in over and over and over again. Now, Martin Luther, uh, one of the reformers back in the 16th century, he was criticized by a member of his church one time because they thought he preached the gospel too often. And a member of the church approached him one day and said, hey, when are you going to move on to something else? You, you keep talking about the gospel. You keep talking about grace. And when are we going to move on to something deeper, something bigger, implication, something better? And this is what Martin Luther said in response. He said, I must listen to the gospel, which teaches me what Jesus Christ has done for me, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel wills me to receive this and to believe it. The gospel is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and here it is, beat it into their heads continually. Now, that was Luther's approach in the 16th century. And by God's grace, many people have followed suit over the years. And that is where we sit as a church today, where my goal as a pastor, as a preacher and teacher of the Bible, my goal in making disciples is really just to beat the gospel into your head over and over and over again. That you would take the gospel into your life by faith repeatedly. And my hope is that the cult culture within our community would be one where we're just beating the gospel into one another's heads continually, taking the gospel in. But when it comes to making disciples, we're not just taking the gospel in. We also want to think the gospel through. Now you pick up in verse five of chapter three, and you find this powerful connecting word, therefore. And then Paul goes on to describe uh, various aspects. He begins to address uh, ways of living that flow out of these, the gospel reality that we've been united with Christ. So he uses the word therefore, which is a logic word. It's a connecting word. It's a word that moves us from one idea towards the implications and the applications of that idea. So he says, therefore, in light of the fact that you have been united with Christ, in light of the fact that you have taken the gospel in, now I want you to think it through so that you can discover how the gospel gives shape to every area of your life. See, the word therefore in verse 5 is a word that reminds us that the Christian faith is a thinking faith. That we don't just take the gospel in. As disciples, we are learners. We are livers of that gospel. So we think the gospel through. 
through. Now Paul's going to go on, and he's going to say a whole lot there from verse 5 all the way down to verse 11. He's going to talk about how the gospel changes our approach to, to sexuality. He's going to talk about how the gospel changes our approach to uh, relationships and how we socially interact with one another. Now, I'm not going to do a deep dive into this passage. We did a deep dive into it uh, last year, and I would encourage you that teaching is still available online. You can check it out there if you want to be reminded of that. But, but at this point, I just want to remind you that the Christian faith is a thinking faith, that we don't just take the gospel into our lives by faith. We now, as disciples, think it through. This is why we as a church talk about how our desire is to discover the difference Jesus makes in all of life. And that process of discovering the difference Jesus makes in all of life requires a therefore to our faith, requires that we are not only taking the gospel in over and over and over again, we are connecting the dots between what the gospel declares to be true about us and how the gospel shapes the way in which we live our lives in the ordinary cross-sections of daily life. So Paul's boldness passage, he applies the gospel to sexuality. He applies the gospel to relationships, saying, look, the gospel isn't what you just trust in to enter into the kingdom of God. The gospel is now what energizes your approach to living in light of the kingdom of God enjoying the redemptive reign of King Jesus. And so in verse 5, he talks about putting stuff to death. Then you look at verse 8, he talks about, I'm sorry, verse, verse 12, he talks about putting on certain things. We, when we become followers of Jesus, there are things within us that needs to die, and so we want to put those things to death. Things that are incongruent with the cross of Christ or incongruent with the resurrection of Christ. We want to put those things to death and then put on that which contributes to a life that flourishes in relationship with God. Now, a couple of years ago, a young man came to faith, and he had no background in Christianity. He wasn't raised in church. And, and when we first met, he knew something about the death of Jesus, but he didn't know anything about the resurrection of Jesus. And so his understanding of the gospel was quite distorted. It was a half gospel. And but upon hearing the gospel and then sinking into community and seeing the way that uh, disciples were loving each other, he, he was attracted to Jesus, eventually put his faith in Christ and was baptized. And not long after he was baptized, I started meeting with him on a regular basis. And one day he entered my office and uh, nonchalantly started talking about his hope to have a polyamorous relationship. That is a relationship where you have many lovers. And in passing, he affirmed his sexual fluidity. Now, his desire was so innocently expressed that it was clear that he had no frame of reference for what sexuality governed by the gospel looked like or should be like. He has no, had no idea. And so we began to step into a conversation. This was a young man who had taken the gospel in, put his faith in Jesus. And now, as a disciple, he was needing to learn how to think the gospel through what difference does Jesus make in how he thinks about relationships and sexuality? So we begin to have, have conversations centered around God's beautiful design and purpose for human sexuality. We begin to talk about the covenant commitment of marriage between a man and a woman and how that contributes to human flourishing. 
And we thought this through in light of the gospel, talking about themes related to purpose and pleasure, security and vulnerability. We explored intimacy and satisfaction, what it means to be more concerned with giving rather than getting. And as we talked about these dynamics, his eyes began to light up and tears began to fill them. Now in that moment, they were not tears of sadness. They were the types of tears that fill our eyes when we're struck by something wonderful and beautiful. It was the type of tears that would compel him to say, you know, I was wrong about how I was thinking about this stuff. That's what I want. That's the type of relationship I want to pursue. That's the type of, of experience I want to have as, we, as I journey with Jesus. You see, when we make disciples, we're not just identifying the types of things that need to die in people. When we are making disciples, we are identifying the types of things that need to, that need to come alive in people. As we are putting our old self to death and we are putting on the character of Christ and how we are thinking through the gospel and finding the beauty of the gospel displayed in our lives, we... We don't just talk about what needs to die. We talk about what should come alive. We want to point to the empty tomb, and we want to talk about the life that, that comes out of that. And so we begin to think the gospel through in order to do that. Now, thinking the gospel through is essential to how we grow in our faith. This is why Paul in Romans chapters, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he, he talks about not being conformed to the pattern of this world, but, being tr- but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds by thinking differently. Then you think here in Colossians chapter 3, you drop down to verse 11. And verse 11, you have the same theme hit there. I'm sorry, verse 10. It says, you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. You are being renewed right now in knowledge after the image of your creator. And you may be tempted in this moment, uh, this language of knowledge, of thinking. I want to be very careful that we are not out to make disciples who just grow in their heads while everything else shrink, shrinks. Meaning we don't want a bunch of big-headed Christians. We don't want to just grow from the neck up. We want to grow from the neck down. We want to be big-hearted Christians whose affections for Jesus and for Jesus' people and for Jesus's purposes, that those affections would be ignited and that they would grow and grow and grow and grow. But the question is, how do you do that? How do you avoid just growing in your head and, and grow in your heart? Well, I think we have to learn to connect the relation. We have to learn to draw the connection between our thinking and our, our between our Uh, imaginations and our affections. I think the imagination is more closely connected to human affections than our reason and than our rational capacities are. And so when we talk about thinking the gospel through, I want you to, I want you to know that thinking the gospel through has more to do with capturing our, having our imaginations captured with the realities of Christ and his gospel than it does with just filling our heads with a bunch of facts and knowledge of theological truths. Because our imagination lives closer to our affections than our reason does. So we want our imaginations to be captured with what should come alive as a result of our faith in Jesus. 
And so we take the gospel in, we think the gospel through. Taking the gospel in, speaking of who we are in Christ, identity, thinking the gospel through, the affections that are growing as our imaginations are being captured by the reality of Christ. And then that brings us to the third and final dynamic. As we take the gospel in, we want to think the gospel through. And then lastly, we want to turn the gospel out. We want to turn the gospel out in the context of community. This is where Paul goes, beginning in verse 16, where he says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That as we grow as disciples and as we make disciples, we are learning to turn the gospel out in community. We are making the gospel visible to one another and to the watching world as we share life together, as we worship Jesus together, as we comprise a new society filled with sinners saved by grace who now are living lives of gratitude to the glory of God. And so he moves us towards community here, saying, I want you to turn the gospel out in your worship, and I want you to turn the gospel out in the worship that happens among you. Now, when you become a Christian, your life becomes an altar. Your very life becomes a place where heaven and earth collide. Your life becomes the place where where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we set our minds on things above. We have our imaginations captured by the beauty and the wonder of all that God has done for us in Jesus. And then we share that and we express that and we embody that in the context of our community, turning the gospel out. And so Paul reminds us that making disciples is something that we do together. It is something that happens within the context of community and a family of faith that's going after these dynamics. Now, there's a guy by the name of Ian Pitt Watson. I've shared this story with you before, but I think it's worth retelling. Ian Pitt Watson was, when he was 14 years old, he couldn't dance. He was awkward and uncoordinated. and, And as a result, he felt alienated from certain social settings where dancing and things like that were, were practiced. And, and one day he got fed up with his situation. He decided to make a change. And so he went and bought a book, Teach Yourself to Dance. And he came home and he opened that book. And the book contained detailed instructions and elaborate diagrams. He became intimately acquainted with what that book was teaching him. He learned and memorized everything that he read. And, and then he would practice every day in front of a mirror, with a pillow as a partner. Now he said about his experience, at that point I really knew the book. Intellectually I had mastered the subject. I also spent many hours trying to put what I knew into practice. I did so alone in my bedroom using a pillow for a partner and studying my progress in the wardrobe mirror. What I saw in the mirror was not reassuring. I was putting my feet in all the right places for I knew the book and I was doing what the book said but something was clearly missing. I was thinking the right things and doing the right things, but I couldn't get the feel of it. And in consequence, everything I did felt clumsy, graceless. Then one night he attended a party. And at the party, he caught a girl's eye and she invited him to dance. And at first he was hesitant. He wasn't sure he could 
cut it out on the dance floor, but, but she assured him that she would be with him. And so she led him out onto the, do, onto the, onto the dance floor, and, and this is what he recounted. He said, in that moment, something, stra- something strange happened. A little of her grace seemed to pass to me, and I began to get the feel of it. For the first time, all I had learned in the book began to make sense. And even the painful practice in front of the mirror started to pay off. What had been contrived now became natural. What had been difficult now became easy. What had been a burden now became a joy. Because at last I had got together what I was thinking and what I was feeling and what I was doing. In that moment, I experienced a kind of grace and it was beautiful. See, turning the gospel in the con- out in the context of community, that's where <laughs> grace begins to flow. As God pours his grace into the lives of his people, and then that grace flows amongst God's people as they live lives of gratitude and worship, turning the gospel out, embodying visibly what their imaginations have been captured with as they are taking the gospel in and thinking the gospel through and now turning the gospel out by living beautiful lives, by living lives promoting the reality of God's kingdom, the beauty of Christ's character, contributing to the flourishing of those surrounding them. And so we make disciples, that's where we're going. We want to take the gospel in. We want to think the gospel through. We want to turn the gospel out. Now, what we're going to do right now is just going to do something that speaks to all of these elements. The idea of taking the gospel in, of thinking the gospel through, of turning the gospel out. All of this is powerfully conveyed as we partake of the Lord's Supper together on a weekly basis. And so if you are at home, I would encourage you to grab whatever elements are near you that can help you worship Jesus during this moment. And I want us to think about the Lord's Supper in light of these three elements. This, the Lord's Supper certainly illustrates the dynamic of taking the gospel in as we are quite literally taking in bread and we are taking in, taking in the fruit of the vine and And we are partaking of this meal together, not because there's magic in the bread or there's magic in the fruit of the vine, but because of what the bread and the cup represents and the spiritual power that that comes from communing with Christ. And so we partake of the Lord's Supper every week as as a way of reminding us to take the gospel in, keep believing, keep trusting, keep reminding yourself of all that God is for you in Christ Jesus. And so we partake of the Lord's Supper today in a way to kind of illustrate the fact that we take the gospel in. But then the Lord's Supper also encourages us to think the gospel through. This is why Paul would tell us that before you partake of the Lord's Supper, you should take some time to examine yourself so that you do not partake of this meal in an unworthy manner. So if there is sin or something you've been struggling with or whatever the case may be that's been concealed rather than confessed, you would take this time to to confess and to pray and to put yourself before the throne of grace once again. And as you think the gospel through, acknowledging areas of life that need to be changed, areas of life that belong on the cross and areas of life that come out of the tomb. And so you want to think the gospel through as you are partaking of this meal each week. 
And then lastly, this, this meal encourages us to turn the gospel out because when we partake of this meal, we also express our gratitude. We thank God for what he has done for us in Christ. And we thank God for the future he has secured for us in Christ. This is why this meal is sometimes referred to as the Eucharist. That we would give thanks. That we would speak a good word of grace in response to God's grace as we partake of this meal. And so we take the gospel in. We think the gospel through. We turn the gospel out by thanking God for what he has done, for what he is doing, and for what he will do one day. And so with that said, let me encourage you to grab the bread, which reminds us of the body of Christ that was given for us. And then we partake of the cup, which reminds us of the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And in response to the bread and the cup, we say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to grow as disciples who are taking the gospel in, thinking the gospel through, and turning the gospel out. Holy Spirit, would you administer the gospel to our lives regularly so that we may reflect and embody the beauty of your gospel in the lives that we are living in the here and now. God, we thank you for all that you are doing. We thank you for what you have done. We thank you for what you will do. God, we pray all of these things now in Jesus' name.